Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come to study your word and ask you to lead and guide in what you'd have us to, to learn. And we just thank you for all the people that are present today. In your son's precious name, amen. 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 All right, Revelation chapter 19, and starting at verse 17. Uh, we're seeing, before this we saw that Jesus was returning with, on a white horse with victory, sword, sword from his mouth. So we're going to take over here. Verse 17, And I saw an angel standing by the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of the heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of the kings, and the flesh of the captains, and the flesh of the mighty men, and the flesh of the horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and, and them that worshiped his image. Both, these both were cast alive into the lake of burning fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat on the horse, which, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fells of the, filled, were filled with their flesh. Okay, so this is the picture of Jesus coming back at the end, Armageddon, the Battle of Armageddon. And we call it a battle, and it's not much of a battle, as this verse tells us. But he calls forth the birds of the air. And if you're familiar with the old battles, Carrion birds always accompanied the battle, at least at the end, because they would feed on the dead. Uh, we see it sometimes even in the desert. You'll see the vultures flying around or eating the dead, and this is what he's calling forth. And I want to take a, just a quick look. I want to go into Ezekiel, same uh, picture except at a different period of time. Ezekiel 39. All right, verse 11. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will give unto Gog a place where the graves of, of, of Israel in the valley of the passenger on the east of, side, east of the river, and it shall stop the noses of the passengers, and they shall bury Gog and all his multitude, and they shall call it in the valley of Hamagog. And seven months shall the house of Israel bury them, and they, that they may cleanse the land. Yea, all the people of the land shall bury them, and it shall be to them a renown the day that I shall be glorified, says the Lord God. And they shall sever out the men continue, of continual employment passing through the land to bury with the passengers those that remain upon the face of the earth, to cleanse it after the end of seven months they sh shall they search. And the passengers that pass through the land, when they see a man's bone, then shall they set a sign by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Hemagog, and also the names of the city shall be Hamonah, and thus shall they cleanse the land. And this, we'll just stop there for a moment. This is a picture. It's going to take them, after Jesus kills all the people that are gathered up to battle him in, in this battle, it's going to take them seven months to bury the bodies. And you think about that being the case, I mean, how fast we can move bodies and, and move ground. Seven months, and, but we know there's going to be millions of people that die, and this battle is going to be one where Satan and, and the kings of the world, and they get this army, huge army together, and the, their purpose is to fight God. And to me, that sounds like a very strange thing. You know, who, who in their right mind is going to even contemplate fighting God 
And yet, Ezekiel tells us about it taking them seven months to bury the bodies. And God is saying he's called all the carrion fowl to, the, to this place to help clean it up as well. But Satan has deceived the people. We've seen how God is going to take the blame for all of these plagues that he, send, that he sends. And Satan is going to try to convince people that he is the one that can beat this God, uh, this, this, this enemy. And he's going to gather the world to, to his side. He's, he's already got them worshiping him. He's got them, you know, we've, we've covered a lot in Revelation that some people haven't been, been here for. But the people have turned, turned against God. They've turned to Satan. They've taken his mark. He's brought some form of peace to them in spite of all that God is doing. Uh, in chapter 18, we saw the economic system being destroyed in, in the ancient city of Babylon and all the economy being wiped out again as it was at the beginning of the tribulation. And so the people are primed to be able to listen to the Antichrist to go against God. So he's gathered millions of people to fight God. And we saw the picture at the beginning of chapter 19 where Jesus is riding on the white horse with his eyes aflame, the sword coming out of his mouth, which is his word. And it says that he is going to ride to battle, and behind him is all of his people on white horses, which is the church. And this battle is not really much of a battle. He speaks and they die. Not much of a battle that Satan has, and it's a very quick battle. So Ezekiel here is foretelling what John wrote in, in the Yes. And we see that in various, the, the books of prophecy, the ones that deal with our day include Ezekiel and Daniel as the two primary ones. I knew Daniel, but I didn't know Ezekiel. Ezekiel is, Ezekiel is a very hard prophetic book, and it talks a lot about our day mm -hmm. in, in, its, in, its, in its writings. Jeremiah and, and Isaiah also a little bit, but not near as much as those two other books. And when we get done with Revelation, I'm, we're going to go ahead and go into Daniel. Does, does John mention that it'll take seven months? He does not mention it. One of the things as we study the scriptures, it's important to study all the scriptures because you start getting the complete picture of everything by going through all of it. And you get little pieces added and it all, and, and it all intertwines so you get a full picture. And this is why I'm going back to Ezekiel here. So we we'll see, and we're gonna we'll read a, more, a little more and he'll talk about the birds as well. This is how we know that he's talking about that same same period of time because nowhere has it taken them seven months to to bury all the dead in history that I can remember anywhere. Now we've had some that have taken weeks, you know, and maybe even a month, but I, don't, I can't remember any place in history where it's taken seven months to bury the dead from a battle. I've had people come to me, you know, say to me, you know, when, I, when I'm talking about the Bible and about God, and they're like, well, it's not true, I, you know, None of it, everything contradicts itself and everything else. It's, and I'm like, no, it don't. It, 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 you hear the same stories. I said, but the, you got to remember that the personal testimonies. So if we were to take four people and show them the same thing, we're going to get four different stories because cause they're a personal testimony of each of these four people. The biggest the thing you want to ask somebody is when they tell you that the Bible is full of contradictions, ask them to give you one. Okay, because what they're doing is they're repeating something they heard somebody else say that the Bible is full of contradictions. So, isn't it true that the only 
true prophetic thing left now is Christ's return. That everything, we're pretty much good to go as far as fulfillment. You mean for him to return? To, for him to yeah, return. Yeah, everything is done yeah, for him to return. There's lots of prophetic still coming, but... Uh, well, yeah, but how many has already happened? Like 800 and some, I oh, thought I heard. Thousands. Yeah. Oh. Thousands. Oh. Sunday School was talking about just two weeks ago, we talked about it, that... Cyrus, who returned the people to the people of Israel from captivity back to Jerusalem, the prophecy for him by name was 150 years and what kingdom he would rule, which at the time that it was prophesied wasn't even anything more than a small insignificant province. And then all of a sudden, 150 years later, it's the major kingdom of the world and Cyrus is ruling it. You've got uh, a Josiah being given by name that he would destroy the, this altar, and that was 300 years before he was born, and he was identified as a son of David. Uh, you know, the specifics of God's prophecies are such that, you know, you might say, well, so-and-so prophesied, you know. Well, usually the prophecies, well, sometime maybe in a, in a region of such and such, uh, somebody is going to rise up and do something that is so vague that it could be fulfilled by any number of 800 different ways. And that is the usual prophecies that we get. That's the kind of thing, when you, if you read horoscopes, which you shouldn't, you know, you're going to meet somebody tall and, and dark. You know, okay, well, that takes care of most of the population of the world. You know, it's, uh, you know but we, we, get, we get this whole... God gives a prophecy, it's very accurate. And as, as uh, Christy was saying, you know, the scriptures were written over 1,400 years by 40 authors. Okay? And yet there is no contradiction. Yes, there's differences in the precise details, but as, as she said, if you go to court and you have three or four witnesses and they all say exactly the same thing, the court is going to throw out their testimony for collusion. Mm -hmm. Okay, they're going to say, you guys have all organized your stories because there's no way you're all going to say exactly the same details. Mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes it's as simple of, you know, well, I went to town yesterday. Well, I went to town with five other people, but it wasn't necessarily important to what I'm telling you about my story. And so it's not that I'm lying to you. I'm just not giving you every single detail that is out there. And that's sometimes what the scriptures does. And you have to combine all the stories to get the full glow of it. But the greatest thing is there's no contradictions. And if you don't understand how amazing that is, think of yourself. If you were to write something down and then you wrote something down a couple years later, there's a great chance that you might even contradict yourself. You go to college and you get professors on any one topic. I'm not even talking about, I'm talking about professors who are on the same specialty. They will contradict each other all the time in their writings. And the Bible's got 40 authors that don't contradict each other because the ultimate is one author of God. And so it is a detail and the prophecies on it are detailed. But going back to what I've said, if anybody ever says, you know, it's full of contradictions, challenge them. Mm -hmm. Show me one. And they're going to go, well, you know, it's full of lots. Well, show me one. I can tell you the five that they would try to show you. And all of them are easily explainable, and we're not going to do it right this moment. <laughs> but there's only about five things that they're going to point to. 
and all of them have very clear, easy explanations. Well, one of them is that in the Kings, uh, in the Book of Kings and Chronicles, it tells you this king reigned at such and such point in time and continued to such and such point in time. Well, you would think, well, I can just sit down and write this down and I'd have a perfect match. Well, there's places where all of a sudden the timelines don't match, apparently don't match up. The problem is a lot of times when a king rode out to, to battle, he would make his son king. So that if he didn't come back, there was no battle over who was going to be king. Mm -hmm. So when he did come back, you now have two kings or a co-regency. Mm -hmm. And so it would say he started here, but another book would say he started later on when he became the only king. Mm -hmm. uh, another problem that they have in, in the kings is Israel and Judah both had a different way of deciding how long you'd been king. One, you start, and I can't remember which one's which, but one, you, you, were in your, you were in your first year, and you were one year in your kingdom the day you started. Right. The other kingdom didn't, didn't say you had a year in until you had passed the year. And we have that same problem in, 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 in America and Asia. America, you aren't one until you are one for a full year. In Asia, you are one the moment you are born. So if you deal with an Asian, they're actually, when they tell you they're 17, in our days, they would be 16, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, so that was another problem that you had trying to draw these lines, okay? Again, a little bit of research, a little bit of understanding what they did, and all of a sudden that whole problem Fair. falls apart. I just can't believe how many are so bad not going. Yeah. And then you get that good king. Yeah. Yep. And then his son sometimes would follow him, and then sometimes. Well, in Jude, in Israel, they always had bad kings. Right. In Judah, they only had six or seven good kings, and and only about three good kings. I mean, really good kings. So, so, but this is the Bible is trustworthy, and believe me, I've been studying it long enough. I've been studying it 44 years, and if there was anything there to be found, I would have found it, and I would have thrown it away, thrown away Christianity, because. If this book, and I've said this over and over, if this book isn't 100% true, I can trust none of it. That's right. And this is, this is why when people try to say, well, I believe this part, but I don't believe this part, I believe this part, you know, they're creating their own religion. And that is the height of arrogancy as far as I'm concerned, trying to create your own. And then we get people in the world who say, well, I want this piece of Christianity, I want this piece of Buddhism, I want this piece of Hinduism, I want... I want this piece of uh, whatever else, and they build their own religion that they feel comfortable with. And to me, that's even worse. Okay, you either believe what, what your deity has taught, or you're, you're living yourself in a deceptive life thinking that you're the deity. Right. And this is why every bit of this book has to be true, and if any of it's not true, I'm wasting my time as a Christian. I'm betting eternity on the truth of this book. And as I say, I've looked at it, and the fact that it's written by so many people with no uh, contradictions tells me that it is a divinely written book. Amen. Because there is no religious book out there that does not have contradictions outside of the Bible. The Book of Mormon is full of different places where it contradicts itself, or the, the Quran inter, you know, contradicts itself. Uh, these other ones in the Middle East and, and Asia all contradict each other at various places, and they're supposedly written by one person, okay, and they're full of contradictions. 
So we want to be able to say, this is true. And when you've got people who are challenging you, just you know, ask them. Ask them where, it's, where, ask them where the contradictions are. The prophecies of the Messiah are amazing. 150 prophecies that all came true at his birth. Okay, as simple as he's going to be born in Bethlehem, a, a small town in the middle of nowhere that, that has no great history, and that he was going to be called a Nazarene. Okay, two very insignificant towns, and makes no sense in that day and age when people didn't move very often, so he's going to be born in one place and, and grow up in another, and two very insignificant small towns. The odds of just that one thing happening is extreme. Out of all the cities in Israel they could have picked, okay, they picked two small ones and say this is where he's from. And then all the other things that go along with it, the babies are going to be killed and he's going to go to Egypt and all these other, uh, all, you know, all these miraculous things. He's going to be of the, the tribe of Judah, you know, and, and all the things that go along with it and saying, okay, this is, you and know. That's why I scratch my head and don't understand how the Jews don't see this. The reason they don't is because they miss the fact that the, the Messiah had to die for the sins and they were looking... They said it in the Old Testament. But they were looking for the other part of what the Messiah was going to do and that was going to be rule from Jerusalem and make it the center of all the world. We also got to understand that even the disciples had that thought about Jesus. Right. Yeah, when do you come you out? Know, Let's go. Yeah, we're ready. We're ready for him to lead. We're ready. And the reason that they were so willing to jump on his bandwagon was, you know, we're on his side. We're the first ones. We're going to be the the dukes and the and the earls, and we're going to run. We're going to run the. We're going to run the uh, country with him because we're on the Messiah side ahead of time. So whenever he would talk about dying, basically what they heard was blah, blah, blah. You know, and, okay, you're done talking about that. We can listen to what you're saying now. And so when he died, it was a shock to them, even though he had told them over and over they and over, over and over again. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't something that made sense to them. It didn't fit. And, but we've got to be careful because we as Christians can do the same thing. We can get so stuck on how God's going to do something, what he's going to do, that we can miss what he is doing currently. Very important about making sure that we understand that. So when, you, when you're talking to somebody and they say, no, I don't believe it because it contradicts itself. And, and so then I'm going to say, okay, show me one. Because they, they have no clue where their Bible is even at. Right. Alone. Very few people ever have an answer to that question. And a couple that do. So then what would I say then? Well, you're not going to convince them the Bible's true. The, the whole problem with this is, I'm going to tell them there aren't any contradictions, see if they have, have one. But ultimately, when you're testifying to somebody, I, I know the answers to answer these things to them, but you know what? When I give them the answers, it doesn't bring them to God anyway. Right. And it doesn't get them to any acceptance. The biggest thing that we need to do as Christians, rather than argue the truth of the Bible, or even that Jesus is God, we give them the gospel. Amen. Give people the gospel. We are sinners. We deserve punishment, and that, be, that punishment is eternal. Jesus came and lived a perfect life, died and resurrected, and he's offering us a gift of eternal life. And do you want to know God? And if they say yes, we, we get them to, to admit that I'm a sinner, I deserve punishment, I, I accept the gift of God. Now the Holy Spirit comes and lives in them. Now my discussions on apologetics and everything start to have a fertile ground to be planted. 
Because I can sit there and I can argue somebody and answer all their questions and maybe get them to understand that I'm right at that time. Then they're just going to go talk to somebody else and, you know, or, or read some things on the internet and they're going to get all confused all over again and be unchanged. Our goal is always to give the gospel. Yes, I want to give them the reasons why I believe what I believe, but they're not going to accept it without Jesus. Same thing when we're dealing with somebody who's living a sinful lifestyle. They're a thief, they're a, they're, uh, you know, a liar, they're homosexuals, they're committing adultery, fornication, and that's their lifestyle. I can tell them all day that those things are sins. And they may or may not accept it because that's their lifestyle. I can, find this, I can get them to agree that they're a sinner. That's, getting somebody to agree that they're a sinner is not real hard. Because everybody knows that they're a sinner in some place. They may not believe the specific activity they're doing that you're really trying to hammer on is, a, is the sin. But they know that they're a sinner. They know that they've done wrong. They know, you know that they've stolen or lied or, you know, or gotten angry with somebody for no, you know, for no good reason. It's pretty easy to convince somebody that they've done... The issues that we have when we deal with people in, in the lost world especially is not to convince them that what they're doing is sin or that they're wrong. Our job is to give the gospel of Christ out. And once they're saved, now the Holy Spirit dwells inside them and all of a sudden it's going to be, oh, now I'm being convicted for this thing that, I, that, I'm, that they were trying to tell me was wrong. And this is why I've told people, because I've had lots of people, you know, how do you witness to a homosexual? How do you witness to a Mormon? How do you witness to a, to a Muslim? It's real simple. It is always the same process. We're sinners. We deserve punishment. Jesus paid for the price. The price, and he's asking us to accept him. And that is the whole thing that we're to do. Will everybody get saved when we give them that information? No, but we plant the seed. We may be the second person to tell them. It's been, it has been suggested that the average person has to hear the gospel six to eight times before they finally hear the gospel. Okay, and I've shared this with people. I've listened to people give a testimony, you know, and they'll go on, you know, and they'll go on, I finally heard the, test, heard the gospel, you know, you know, and I'm going, well, I know that wasn't the first time you heard the gospel because I gave it to you, you know, three years before that, but it's like, but in, in reality, though, it is the first time they heard the gospel and it actually hit their brain with any force and so yes they heard it many times and those were all those seeds planted in there and then one day somebody comes along and maybe doesn't even do as good a job presenting it as other people have but God gives them the honor of being the one that leads, leads them to the, to the throne just because they've heard it enough times and all of a sudden they were in the right place and it clicks in their mind oh yes I am a sinner and I'm in need of God and that's why even in growth, it's the same thing. People aren't going to realize something until God steps in and reveals it to them. And this is where we have to be very careful that we're not trying to put what we have learned about him onto somebody else and try to put them in the same mold that we are in. Because God is molding me in a direction to minister to a certain number of people in a different group. And he's molding somebody else to be able to. And there are people that I will never be able to minister to because of who I am and what I do and and there's other people that they could never minister to the ones that I got, but boy, they can minister to other people with no problem. And we all grow differently. And I've shared this with people. If I'm so busy trying to get somebody to grow in an area that God made me grow in, I might be doing more harm to that person than good. And a, and a great example is, not to offend the smokers, but if I'm concentrating on telling people they shouldn't smoke, 
But they have another sin in their life that is going to bring their death tomorrow, not just 20 years, 30 years from now, but they're going out and stealing or something, you know, uh, you know, doing armed robberies. And I'm sitting there saying, you shouldn't smoke, you shouldn't smoke, you shouldn't smoke. And God's saying, I want them to, not to quit stealing. And they go out the next day and get killed because I was, you know, you, you see the point. And that could be any number of sins out there that, that if we're so concentrated on the one that we see, there may be something more horrible in their life that God's saying, quit bugging them about this one that you're bothered by. And this is why we've got to be understanding everybody stands and falls before their own master, before God, and they have to work out their salvation. And it's critical that we don't try to run other people's lives. Now, I will teach what the Word of God says, and that will either mean something or not mean something to people. I can, if I, and just as I said on Sunday, if I'm going to talk to somebody in love, it better be in love, and I better be praying for them before I even bother to talk to them. If I haven't been praying for them, I don't care enough about them to even speak into their life. Because if I, otherwise, I'm just hammering you with what I think you should be doing, and it won't come out as love. If I haven't had enough courage to go to God and pray for it, it's not going to be me saying it to this person is not going to be of any value. Now, if you've been praying for somebody and God is still saying, go talk to them, then make sure it is in love as well. Not, not hammering them with a great big uh, sledgehammer, but you just love them and say, I'm concerned. You know, I'm concerned because this is what I see and I'm very worried about it. And you let them know that it's in love and kindness that you're doing it. And you still love them even if they don't do it. And so very important that we keep all of this in, in mind. You know, God has a plan for each one of our lives, and it's an individualized plan. He doesn't have this one big plan up there and say, okay, everybody's got to fit into this plan. You know, it's not a one-size-fits-all plan. It is a plan that is specific to each person. Now, there are certain things that are definitely wrong for everybody. Okay, God says you shall not lie, you shall not murder, you not, shall not commit adultery. There's a lot of things in the Bible that are absolute you shall not. And those things we can share with people, hey, God says that's not right. But even then, it's up to them on what they're going to do with this and answer to God. And that whole conscience part of them is going to come in play. Let's get back to Ezekiel 39 here, oh. verse 17. For just a moment. You don't have to turn to it. I'm just going to read through the rest of it. And you, son of man, thus saith the Lord God, speak unto every feathered fowl and every beast of the field, assemble yourself and come, gather yourself on every side to my sacrifice that I do sacrifice for you, even a great sacrifice upon the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. Ye shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, the rams and lambs and goats, the bullocks and all the fatlings of Bashan. You shall eat fat till you are full, drink blood till you are drunk and of my sacrifice which I have sacrificed unto you. Thus you shall find be filled at my table with horse and chariots, and with mighty men, and with all the men of war, says the Lord. And I will set my glory upon the heathen, and all the heathen shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid upon you. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. And the heathen shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity in their iniquity because of their trespass against me. Therefore I hid my face from before you and gave them into the hand of their enemies and they fell by their swords. And he goes on on. So here we are, the same battle being pictured that God is calling all the birds of the fowl and saying, I'm going to give you a feast. This is millions. This is millions of people that are going to be killed at the word of Christ. 
Okay, so he's saying uh, that you may eat flesh and blood. He's talking to the birds. <laughs> yes, and we're going to see this is exactly what he's saying here. Come, come together, the birds. You're going, and in Revelation, he says, come together. Come together. This is the last, or second to last battle, actually, in this world's history. Because after this, the millennial kingdom is going to be established. Now we transition back to Revelation 19 here, and we, we see you know, this, is the, this is the battle that's taken place. This is seven years of tribulation on this earth have passed. The world has been judged. Millions and millions of people have died. The total, the total population of the world, as far as we can understand from just the, the, the plagues and everything that hit it, has been reduced by almost 67% of the population of the world. Okay, that's a huge death factor. That's over half. It's over half, and you figure we're at, what, what's the latest number, three and a half trillion people or something? So you're down, you know, you're down to probably a trillion people left on the earth at this point, give or take. <laughs> uh, a lot of people have passed away. This has been a brutal time in the world history. Seven years where that many people have died. And Jesus comes back. This is the point that the Jew, going back to why do the Jews not accept him as the Messiah? This we're getting ready to see is the point that they're waiting for. The Messiah coming back. And we're going to see in the next chapter that he's going to establish Israel as the world's kingdom. Okay, this is what the Jews have been waiting for. The Jews have been waiting since the very beginning for their Messiah to come who's going to rule, the son of David who's going to rule forever. And that Jerusalem will be the center of the world and all of commerce and everything will be coming to Jerusalem and worship will be coming to Jerusalem. And here's that point. Jesus comes back. He destroys everything. He destroys the enemies fighting him. And he's going to rule for a thousand years. And so we look at this and we read Revelation 19.20. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet, which wrought miracles before him, in which he deceived them, that received the mark of the beast, and they that worshipped him. And both of these were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Satan is going to be locked away for a thousand years. This is going to be done so that when, when Jesus gets done and God gets done at the very end of a thousand years and lets him go for a while, God tells us that we're sinners, okay? And that we sin because we are sinners. And we want to understand that. We don't sin, we're not sinners because we sin. We are sinners, therefore we sin. Even as Christians, we sin because we are sinners as long as we're not walking with God and keeping our flesh crucified, and we don't. Uh, we could, if we allowed him to do his complete work and him be perfect, and then we'd be translated just like Enoch and Elijah was, because they kept as close to perfect as you can get. We sin because we're sinners, and we don't allow God to have his full work in us. And all of us are that same way. And the world tries to tell us, the world tries to tell us that we're basically good people, and and that's all, we, that's all you need to be. You need to be a good person. And, and you, could, you could live a perfect life if you just could get away from all these people that are <laughs> teaching you to be bad. doesn't work. You're not basically good, okay? And we all know that. You know, those of us who've raised kids know that we never really taught our kids to be bad. They just are bad. 
you know, I, I can tell you, I never went to my kid and go, you need to be really selfish and keep that toy to yourself. You don't let your brother and sister have it. They do that all on their own. Now, the world will tell us that we taught them that by giving them rules. But you know, if you watch, watch some of these kids who have grown up in rich families that really don't seem to have rules, some of them are the most spoiled brats and awful people in the world because they have never been disciplined. So the idea of not giving rules is not going to make them better. It's just going to make them worse faster. But we do get this point where the whole purpose of the millennial kingdom is to show that people desire to sin. Because for a thousand years, Christ is going to rule with an iron rod and people are going to be perfect. Now, and I, and I make kind of a joke, but it's not a joke. You know, we talk about the thought police in our day and age and everything and how everything is going to your motives behind it. Jesus, being God and knowing the thoughts of you, you know, you're going to be sitting in your room, your, your house thinking, like, maybe I should just go out and kill this person. <laughs> yes, we're here to say, no, you're not doing that. He is going to rule in such a way that nothing will be wrong for a thousand years, even though we have a... Well, we won't because we will be glorified because we're coming back with them. But those that have been alive will have sin nature still in them and they want to sin because their sin nature is going to want to sin. And he's going to make them be obedient for a thousand years so that when Satan was released at the end of the thousand years, he's going to have a number of people that are really anxious to join that rebellion because, because they have wanted to sin for a thousand years and have not. During this millennial kingdom, the animals will be back at peace with each other. They will be all herbivores as they were created originally to be. And the children, and those were the verses when they will lie, lay with the, the lamb and the children will you know, sit at the adder's, adder's nest and not be worried, okay? All of that will happen during the millennial kingdom and God is going to enforce obedience. We won't have that problem. We've been glorified. We went up to him. We will have our glorified bodies we won't have a sin nature. We won't be even tempted to sin because of our nature has already been decided and we will have our eternal entity. So the thousand years then when Satan is let loose for that season, it comes down to give them a choice. One last choice. A choice. And you would think they wouldn't go that way. But that's why I explain why they would, because for years I used to figure, why would anybody go, why would anybody go with him after a thousand years of perfection? Because there's going to be that rebellious heart. Just like there is today. Just as it is today, there's, they've been forced to be obedient for a thousand years. And doesn't that give forth the free will? It's one last chance for free will. Because for a thousand years, you're not going to have free will. You know, you'll have some degree of free will, but you're not going to have free will to sin. So Satan will come back at the end and that will be the one last chance of free will saying, okay, you've had a thousand years of perfect, perfect rule. What are you going to do? Is that going to be me? I'm just saying, if I was there, I'm going to live to be a thousand or am I going to die off and have offspring and they're going to carry on? What, 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 we don't know that yet. Most people will, it says that if anybody dies at a hundred or two hundred years, they will die as a child. So yes, we will be living at, at to to be a thousand. Well, we will we will have our glorified bodies. We're going to live forever. We will live. Come on, who's the oldest man in the book? Methuselah. And how old did he live? Nine hundred and sixty-nine. Oh. We as Christians have spent the tribulation period in 
heaven with God, and we come back with our glorified bodies. After okay. a thousand years. Well, no, we come back with him on the horses behind him as we are glorified beings. We will be, I, won't, I want to be careful how I say this, but, you know, the angels right now are in control of everything. We will be kind of in that set. We will not, we will not sin. We will, and we've got our bodies. We're going to be around when they destroy the world at the end of the thousand years and the new heaven and earth are created and we will still have our bodies that go forward from there. The people who have lived through all of the seven years of tribulation and have not taken the mark of the beast are the ones that are going to live in the thousand-year millennial kingdom. They will have children. They will, they will, live, they will live their day-to-day -day lives for, for a thousand years, like we're doing now. And at the end of that thousand years will be that final test, which we get ahead, but... You know, we'll copy more and get more in details. But at the end of that thousand years, Satan is released from the bottomless pit to give one last hurrah to try to steal souls from God. And we bring this up so many. Satan's whole goal in trying to get humans to reject God is so that he can hurt God. He is not building a kingdom because he is going to be an inmate in hell. Hell is a prison for him and for the demons and for all the humans that choose to follow him that it's not him building this great kingdom that's going to be this other kingdom against God for all of eternity. No, he and everybody who's rejected God are sent to a prison for eternity. The ultimate life sentence, uh, an eternal life sentence of punishment because they chose to reject God. And this is, this is the answer. When you witness to somebody and they go, well, how can a loving, good God send people to hell? He does not send people to hell. He gives them what they asked for. Because the ultimate heaven would not be a blessing to somebody who doesn't want to know God. It would be probably, they would have hell in heaven if, they, if he forced them into heaven. So he gives them what they wanted. Now, they're going to find out it wasn't what they wanted. They're going to find out too late that it wasn't what they wanted. But he's going to give them what they, want, what they thought they wanted. And so he's not sending people to them. He's giving them what they desired by rejecting him. Because the only sin that is unforgivable, and Jesus talked about this, is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit's job? Is to convict people of their need for Christ. That, that is his primary. I mean, we get to know him in a much different way. But his primary mission on this world is to convict people of their sins and to bring them to Christ. So for them to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to reject his mission of bringing them to Christ. In other words, reject Christ. So when they stand before God at the white throne judgment, there's only one big issue that's going to be before God. What did you do with my son? Well, I, you know, well, I didn't have a chance to, to accept him. And then he's going to play over their life every time that they had the opportunity to be convicted about their sin and need for Jesus Christ. And there's going to be plenty. There's nobody going to go to hell that's going to be able to say, I never had a chance. I never had a chance because everybody has some level of conviction of their sin. And it's amazing when missionaries will go to some of these, you know, back in the old days when there was a lot of them, but they go to these Indian tribes or African tribes, mm -hmm. and they would always find a small remnant of people there that were worshiping usually an unknown God or a God that they knew was the only way they could get there. They didn't have all the details of who it was or why it was, but there was always a small 
remnant, and then they would hear the missionary story, and they're going, that's who we've been waiting for. They were probably technically saved as far as God's concerned because they were following the right goal. They didn't have all the details, but God says, yes. You know, there was always groups in, headhunter, in the headhunting tribes that would not eat the, eat the meat of humans because they just knew it was wrong. Okay, there's been all of this going on. You're only saved by the name of Jesus, but the cue is, what is the name of Jesus? It's all the authority and power that he, that he operates in. And we've covered this many times. The name is not just Jesus. Because if that was the case, then what name are you going to use? Yeshua, the, his Hebrew name. Jesus, the Spanish name. Uh, Jesus, as we say it. You know, all the different languages pronounce his name differently. So if it is literally the name, what's the right one? You know, and if that's the case, you better go to the Hebrew because that was his name, Yeshua. So it's more than just his name. It is his whole representation of every, his reputation, what his name means, okay? And this is why we've talked about it. When you pray in the name of Jesus, a lot of Christians will ask all these really crazy things, and then they tag on at the very end of their prayer, in the name of Jesus. Well, none of what they prayed for has anything to do with his reputation and what he would want spoken. So you really still, even though he said in the name of Jesus, you have not prayed in his name. These are the magic words. I can ask for I can ask for a million dollars, a Mercedes Benz, and a and a you know whatever the most expensive car is, and, a, and the, the house on the top of the roof. All I gotta do is put in Jesus' name, and I've got He's the magic genie that I that I that I that will answer all my requests. But that whole idea of in His name, in His name is where the power is, and we're gonna see in setting up. We're getting down to the very end, of the last few chapters of this where. Everything is being culminated. The history is culminated. Paul tells us that nature itself declares God. So you'll, you'll find that missionaries are amazed when they go places how many people are already, for all practical purposes, worshiping God. Okay? We are told. The history tells us. Uh, I, I have a book in my library, the, the Gospel in the Stars, where the very constellations of the stars tell the story of Christ and his message, and it's quite interesting, and it is very how Satan has twisted those into the, to astrology instead of being what it is. And the, and the ancient names of the stars that go all the way back to the Babylonians and before have some very powerful indication of the gospel. Uh, Libra, the scales. On the side that is up, it's the price deficient, and on the bottom is the price sufficient. And it shows that works is not enough and Jesus needed to pay for it. And it's, you know, the, name, the original names of the stars are just amazing when you get into, and God says he named the stars. And the very fact that, we, that all nations have the same set of constellations shows that it's more than just man-made. They all have the same general story behind them and you trace them back to their ancient ones and they go back into the Babylonian times and before and we see, starting with Virgo the Virgin, who has a child in the second house, and she's still called the Virgin, and the child is crowned with a, with a crown. So you see a picture of Jesus and the Virgin Mary, and you go around the constellations to Lion, where he is the, the, the master and the ruler of all. So you see all of these pictures in there, and you see 
the hyperstatic union being represented by the various mixings of different things that can't be mixed together. Right. You know, you see the scimitar, the, the man and the, and the horse, which is a picture of the man and God being put together in one that can't be mixed. So you see all the different things in the, in the gospel being presented, and that's why he said, look up. Watch the progression of the gospel every night. So that isn't serious, the dog up there. No. <laughs> no. Orion, the mighty hunter. Yeah. His, his foot is raised above the head of the serpent. In his hand, he holds a club ready to, to destroy the, the uh, wolf, the destroyer. Okay. You have a picture of Jesus again. Foot over the serpent in victory. You, you've got the great dragon that goes all through the stars. You've got, but it is full of all these pictures of the gospel message. And we see God has always put it out there. So it's been from the beginning. It's been since the very beginning that God has put all this stuff. And then Satan has tried hard to destroy the pictures and pervert it. But that is what he does. He's done such a good job that most Christians don't, most pastors don't even want to start talking about the, about the gospel and the story because it might make people think about the, about the lie that Satan has put out. And the one thing you want to remember, Satan has a lie for every truth that God has. Satan has one or more lies and usually dozens to hundreds of them. I can tell you how to find the book because, because the book is hundreds of pages and it names many, you know, so many of the stars. And, but it, it goes into the old, the old names of the stars and the old original names of the stars have a lot of power in them. So... The Gospel in the Stars. Uh, but there's several books that came out of this one book. There's one that's old and there's other ones. I was deceived that he didn't exist. And the remnant were slain by the sword of him that, were, that sat on the horse, and the sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So Satan and the beast were cast in the, into it, and all the humans were killed. Well, not all the humans in life, in the, in, on the earth. All the humans gathered to fight. There's going to be a lot, you know, seven months, you know, Ezekiel tells us it's seven months to clean up the, clean up the bodies. And so he just spoke it and they died? Basically, the, the sword out of his mouth, which is his word, mm -hmm. he spoke it and they died. That's what I'm saying. Here, here's, a great big, here's a great big battle. I mean, it's a, this is supposed to be the, the ultimate battle of the time, and he just speaks and they're dead. It's amazing to me how many people think that Satan is Christ evil on some level. When you talked about um, hell being his jail, mm -hmm. his sentence. This is as much of a kingdom right. as he's ever going to have. He is not God's equal. No. I mean, it's amazing because there are so many people and even Christians who believe that somehow Satan is God's slightly weaker evil. No, he's the dog on a chain who's been given a little bit of permission to go do something and can be yanked back at any moment and is under control of him at, at all times, even though he doesn't want to be. He's that dog on a chain that says, you can do this, you can do that, you can do this. Nope, I'm not going to allow you to do that. Pulls back on the chain and controls him even though he doesn't want to be controlled. It is hard for us to see that, and this is why we as good Bible-believing Christians understand Satan is not in control. He is not empowered. God is in control. God is sovereign. And as long as we truly believe that God is sovereign and he's in control, Romans 8. What, can, what can really touch us? Nothing. Everything is for good. God is in control. He is sovereign. He uses it for his reasons. Mm -hmm. 
And this is why Paul says, I have learned to be content in much or in little. Why? Because he fully understood God is in control. I've met Christians who seem to have everything. Nothing seems to bother them. It's, you know, if you talk to them, they, have, they don't seem to have problems in their life. And you look at them and go, wow, you had all these other problems. But they don't see them as problems. Because they just have so trusted in God in most of their life that they're just walking through. And, they, and then you've got other people like everything in their life is a problem. You know, their, their health is bad. This is bad. This is bad. This is bad. And they might not even, if you really compared the two, what they're going through may not even be as bad as what the person who hasn't seen things as a problem goes through because their attitude is different. And I have a friend of mine who says everything is all about attitude, and it really is. If I have an attitude that God's in control and everything is going to be good, it's interesting. I'll talk to people in the prison and go, how's your day go? My day is going great just like all of them do. Because for my attitude, pretty much, I am not going to have a bad day because God is in control. Does that mean bad things aren't going to happen to me? Absolutely not. But I'm not going to let those bad things have control over me because God's allowing them to come my way and it's going good. And there may be times when I say, God, I don't understand why this is happening, but you've promised it's, that there's good. And I'm just going to continue walking in him. Then there's other people, and we talked about it even on Sunday, that get blown to and fro and tossed to and fro and the, the littlest puff of problems devastates them. You know, because all of a sudden they go, oh my goodness, God doesn't love me anymore. Look at, you know, this is all this bad stuff's happening to me, so God must have forgotten about me for the day. And they're going into a panic, and the more they panic, the worse everything else gets. Fear has torment. And uh, so we need to get to this point where we're content in what God allows to come our way. And we say, God, I may not understand it, but you have promised. You've promised that you, I'm your child, that you're going to keep me, that it's for good. Now, remember, I've said it's not necessarily for our good. There's no, there's no my good in that, in that sentence. It is for good. And that may mean that what I suffer is for somebody else to look at and see me suffering and saying, wow, they're going through it and God is keeping them. And they grow because I suffered. And if that's the case, praise God. They grew and I had to suffer a little bit. And we see this when, with Paul, and, and, and all through, if you've read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you see this, people suffer and then people come to Christ because they suffered. And was the suffering good for them? Absolutely not. Many of them lost their life in that suffering, but people came to Christ. And, if they, and from the heaven side of things, they're going to say, the suffering was worth it. Souls came to Christ because of my suffering. Souls got strengthened because I suffered and I walked through trusting God and they grew because of my suffering. And then we can say, praise God. Am I praising God that I suffered? Absolutely not. I don't want to suffer any more than anybody else. But if somebody can grow and come to Christ because I suffer, then I will be like the rest of the apostles. Praise God that my suffering is worth, worth something. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Anybody wants to stay, we'll keep talking. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to look at you. Lord, we thank you that you are sovereign. You are in control that you have no rival, that you will not be losing any battles at all because you are the sovereign Lord. And we just thank you. Help us to learn to trust that in your son's name. Amen.